Good to be with you this morning. We are uh, this morning considering a text from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, going through verse 16. It reads, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. So this morning we conclude our series called The Next Normal. And one of the things that nobody knows about me, even my wife Gretchen, is that I love steamerships. Steam, there we go. Actually, I, I don't love steamerships. I know nothing about steamerships at all. But I did find this amazing story um, that on December 31st, 1899, this very steamership, the SS Weramu, I think I'm saying that right, uh, was on its way from Vancouver to Australia. And it, the navigator had just worked out this whole celestial computation of their exact position, and he went to the captain with it, and the, the position of the ship was latitude 0 degrees 31 north and longitude 179 degrees 30 west. And the, the first mate, the captain says, do you know what this means? And he says, we're only a few miles from the intersection of the equator and the international date line. And so what happened next is the captain, being a bit of a... Uh, one who liked to play practical jokes and pranks, makes a decision. And he calls his navigators to the bridge to check and double-check their position. And so then he changed course slightly so that he would, and adjusted the engine speed, and at midnight, so midnight, January 1st, 1900, this is what happened. The forward section, the bow of the ship, was in the southern hemisphere and in the middle of summer. The stern of the ship was in the northern hemisphere and the middle of winter. The date on the aft part of the ship was 31 December 1899, and the bow, the forward part of the ship, it was, first, it was January 1st, 1900. And so the result was that the ship 
was in two different days, in two different months, in two different years, in two different seasons, and in two different centuries, all at the same time. When I read that, I don't, this, I found, I read this story several years ago and I tucked it away because I was like, that one's going to, one day. Well, today is that day. That story is so great. It's just, I love that kind of intersection of all those different things that seem impossible. And what it reminds me of is that we, as the church, are living in two different realities at once. We live in what theologians call the now and the not yet. We live in the reality that God's kingdom has come. Jesus has instituted his kingdom. His resurrection has started the new creation. And we, as followers of Jesus, live in that reality. But that reality has not come in fullness. We are not there yet. We are in both places at once. The now and the not yet. We are citizens of the world and we are citizens of the kingdom. Two very different realities. How do we do that? How is it that we live this out? This morning we are concluding our series called The Next Normal. And what I want to talk to you about is this reality of what it means to be the people of God in the midst of this now and not yet. And I think there's something about the season that we find ourselves in, that you find yourselves in, that is uh, particularly apt to this conversation. We find ourselves as the larger church in a season where things are changing rapidly, right? We could talk about the statistical changes in our uh, population in the United States and, and the fact that um, there is a double-digit rise of what are called the nuns. The nuns, not nuns like the Catholic sisters that some of you went to school with, but um, the nuns, those who when they mark a demographic survey, when it gets to religious preference, they mark none, N-O-N-E. There has been an, a double-digit rise in the last 20 years of that number, right? We live in a reality where we are in this kind of almost maybe post-COVID, post-pandemic uh, season, and, and nobody really knows what that's going to look like for culture at large or the church. Now, I know you can go on the Internet and you can find all kinds of people who will tell you what the next thing is for the church in this season. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm not sure how they know, but at any rate, we find ourselves in this place, what's called liminal space. What is, is, what is next has not yet fully been born, but what is past is no longer with us, right? And so we have to figure this out. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, from which the verses that we read this morning come, 
says to the people around him, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now, we could spend a bit of time this morning talking about the fact that sodium chloride, which is uh, salt, is a stable compound and it can't lose its saltiness. That's my science. That's it. That's all I got, right? But if you look at if you do some research, you recognize that the salt that people used in Jesus' time was not necessarily pure salt. It was salt from the Dead Sea or other places that was impure. And so over time, it would, uh, the other chemicals would uh, leach out and it was no longer very salty. Um, we could talk about all of those impure substances. We could make all kinds of references to that and draw some lessons out of that. But but I think as often we are wont to do, if we focus there, we are losing the forest for the trees. Jesus um, is using an image. He's trying to draw a picture of influence, of flavor, of a sense of place in the world that, that we as his followers are to bring flavor to the world. So he goes on, and he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on the hill cannot be hidden. And again, we could talk all kinds of things about light and lamps and all the different reasons why we don't hide them under bushels, and we could sing the song, and we could do all those things. But again, the point is perhaps missed if we don't pay attention to, the, to one simple fact. The you in, this, in these verses, both 13 and 14, is emphatic. You, my followers, are salt. You, my followers, are light. Eugene Peterson translates these verses this way. And I want you to just listen like you're hearing these for the first time. Beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, Let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Here's another way to put it. You're here to be light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century church leader and theologian, said this. He said that flight into the invisible is a denial of the call. A community of Jesus which seeks to hide itself has ceased to follow him. Now, I recognized as I chose this text for this sermon that for those of us who have perhaps spent a long time in the church, we've probably heard a lot of sermons about this text. And we've heard a lot of ways that we can be salty and a lot of ways that we can be lighty. 
if that's a word, right? And we've heard about a lot of ways that we have to stand up and be counted and all of those things. In fact, um, I would argue that over the last 50, 60 years, the church has spent an inordinate amount of energy on what we call the culture war, on taking a stand on truth, on fighting for all of these things. And I think a lot of it oftentimes is based on verses like this, to be salt and light, except that uh, what Jesus is telling us is not that we're to stand up and demand something, we're to flavor something. We're to preserve something. We're to bring light to something, not just heat, light. Oftentimes we hear these verses and we, we're reminded that to be salt and to be light is to be different. But brothers and sisters, I think that we have in the church reduced being conspicuous, conspicuously different to moralism. We've reduced being conspicuously different to uh, voting a certain way or standing up for certain causes or whatever it might be, fill in the blank with your pet project. And I don't think that that's, the, that's all of what Jesus had in mind. Because context-wise, if you look at these verses, we have to be reminded that Jesus is in this Sermon on the Mount, from which these verses are taken, is calling the disciples and us to live in the upside-down way of the kingdom. He is describing here in the Sermon on the Mount, or what I like to call the Jesus Manifesto, the way it is that we are to be in the world. The way it is that we are to live in the world. The point is not so much to be morally pure so that others notice you. The point is to live in such a way that points to God. It's to live in an inherently different way, not just to be really good people. Here's the other thing you will notice if you're paying attention. And I want you to listen carefully to this. We do not achieve salt status or earn lumens from our good morals or culture war medals. We receive them in the transforming grace of Jesus Christ. We do not earn our salt status or lumens, brightness, by our good behavior. We receive them as a gift through the grace of Jesus. So how do we do this? How is it that Jesus expects us to live this way? Well, one of the things that I think is important to note is who is Jesus talking to when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount? You see, sometimes we read this section of Scripture and we kind of lift it out and we think that Jesus is just giving this kind of, um, you know, unachievable ethic, right? But Jesus is talking to somebody. Jesus is talking to a, a ragamuffin group of people. He's talking to the poor in heart. He's speaking directly to the meek, the mourning, the peacemakers. He's looking them in the eye. 
And he's saying to them, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For you will be filled. Those are the people that Jesus is talking to. And he's then calling them to be that city on a hill, that salt that heightens flavor. But how? How do we do that? Well, I think we have to rediscover what it means to live in exile. Because in some sense, this life that we, this reality that we inhabit, this now and not yet reality, is similar to living life in exile. And so we would do well to note that. Now I once, recognizing this idea of how is it that we live this way. So years ago I had a conversation with some dear brothers in Christ about where they lived. And we were talking about the community and the county that we were in. And these were two dear brothers who had lived in this place for decades. And as I listened to them describe and talk about their community, the overwhelming feeling I got was disdain. It was disdain. It was, you know, oh, well, they're so liberal, they're the, so this, they're so that, and on and on and on. Just a laundry list of complaints and about how awful this place was. And I can't, and, and I remember standing there thinking, well, gee, it's no wonder you're not reaching people for Christ. If you, if you think that they don't, can't tell that you don't like them, how are you going to convince them that you love them? Right? And so we have to learn what it means to live in exile. And, and so to do that, I think we have to go back and we have to listen to the prophet Jeremiah. You see, the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the exiles in Babylon. And basically, I'm going um, to paraphrase a little bit. He has spent a number of chapters uh, talking to them about how God's judgment has come on them and the reason that they're in exile, Right? And now we want our prophets to come and tell us, it'll be okay. God sees you. God's going to rescue you. God's going to liberate you. He's right around the corner. It's going to happen just so soon, right? I mean, if you grew up in the church, you know this story. You know, oh, well, Christ is coming back. He's going to rapture us away, right? But the prophet Jeremiah comes to the people in exile, and what does he say? He doesn't come to them and say, oh, you know what? Well, next, it's going to be next week or the week after that. You're going to be redeemed, brought out of exile. Everything's going to be fine. Nope. Jeremiah 29, J Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. In other words, buckle up, folks. You're going to be here for a while. And then, also, seek the peace 
and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Friends, I can't help but believe that our next normal as the church, whatever the season is that God is calling us to, and I'm talking church, capital C, and I'm talking Kent Cove, whatever the next normal is, we have to learn, we have to lean into learning to live as exiles, seeking the peace and prosperity of a place that is not our ultimate home. And we do not do that with an antagonistic attitude. We do not do that with a culture war mentality. We do that with a servant's heart, seeking the peace and the prosperity of the place in which we have been planted. We seek to love and serve our neighbors. We seek to be salt to bring flavor to their lives. We seek to love and serve our community to bring light Because that is who we are called as the people of God to be. Salt and light. Flavor and light. For the good of our neighbor. Dallas Willard says that, um, talks about how this is given, Right? This is the idea that God has, gives us this light and salt through the grace of Jesus. God gives them light, truth, love, and power that they, may, that they might be the light for their surroundings. He makes them salt to cleanse, preserve, and flavor the times through which they live. These little people, without any of the character or qualifications humans insist are necessary, are the only ones who can actually make the world work. Just so, Jesus says to those he has touched, let your light glow around people in such a way that seeing your good works, they will exalt your Father in the heavens. Jesus looked out at the crowd that was gathered around him as he gave the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine. You are salt. Let your lives give flavor to those around you. So brothers and sisters, the next normal is a place where the church leans in and learns afresh what it means to love our neighbors to seek the peace, the shalom, the well-being of the city in which we reside and its prosperity. This is our call, church. The next normal, to be salt and light to Kent, to King County, and beyond. Amen.